This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code Irish Times at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace's European Operations and Customer Service Office is located right here in Dublin. Squarespace, build it beautiful. You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Hi, and welcome to another edition of Worldview from the Irish Times, perspectives on foreign affairs from our network of correspondents around the globe. Today, again, we're returning to the aftermath of Friday's killings in Paris. I'm Patrick Smith. Suzanne Lynch, our correspondent in Brussels, will be looking at the fallout in Belgium and how the EU is responding to France's call for solidarity from its partners. There are important EU treaty obligations to come to the aid of our partners under attack. What do these mean in practice? But first to France and the international fallout. Uh, I'm joined by Paris correspondent Lara Marlowe in Paris on the political implications and the changing attitudes to the Muslim community, by Vincent Durack, UCD lecturer on the Middle East and its politics, on how uh, the IS challenge is evolving, and journalist and academic Paul Gillespie on how the attacks are playing into the migration debate. Lara, there are reports that in the wake of the attacks, a less sympathetic approach is being taken by a lot of French to the Muslim community than than in the wake of the Charlie Hebdo uh, killings in January. There'd be no grand public appeals for solidarity with Muslims, no big marches and few pleas not to confuse practitioners of Islam with those who preach jihad. Do you have a sense of a change in the mood? Um, Yes, I do. I mean, if anything, it's... It's it's not mentioned. I mean, it's just been totally sort of wiped away. Whereas it was, it was very very much an issue in January, right after from the the, the attacks. Some um, there were pages and pages in newspapers and Muslims on the radio and the television and and all of the imams and the the, the Muslim groups, you know, calling the, condemning the attack and so on. And this time, it's it's almost as if the scale of the atrocity was so horrific that. People don't even want to talk about Muslims. I, I, I can't explain it really, but I, I think they've also realized that the, forgive the term, tame Muslims, the, the, the establishment imams who are accepted by the state and who always call for peace and tolerance and, and who say they respect secularism and so on, I think people realize that what they say really has no importance because the French know how to, they, they distinguish already between secular Muslims. I mean, there are at least two of them in the government, the education minister, um, Najat Vallaud-Belkacem, and the labor minister, uh, Miriam Gomri, are uh, Moroccan, of Moroccan origin, and they, in theory, are Muslims. Uh, Malik Bouti, who was, used to run SOS Chassisme and has been a, a deputy in parliament, so on, he, he's been talking, he did a big report on the alienation of Muslim youths in the banlieue and has been talking about that. And, and people like, like um, Malik Bouti, um, Belkassim, Velo Belkassim and, and Gomri, the French have no problem with them whatsoever, as long as the French Muslims look you know, behave like French people and the women don't wear headscarves and they uh, espouse laïcité, you know, state and force secularism, there is no problem whatsoever. And, and I think your average Frenchman or French woman distinguishes totally between those kind of Muslims and the radical Islamist Muslims uh, who uh, join Islamic State and sneak off to Syria and come back and, and kill people. I, I, I think that that distinction is very, very clear. And 
perhaps less so in minds of, of, say, some of the National Front people who might think the only dead Muslim is a the only good Muslim is a dead Muslim. But by and large, they they do make the distinction. I think what is happening is that the distrust of anything resembling devout um, practice of Islam, uh, men who wear kameez or beards, um, people, I, I, I asked a, a friend this morning what she thought, and she said, well, yeah, she said, actually, I find I'm looking more at people with darker skin. I'm, I'm more distrustful of them. And even myself, you know, I, I lived for eight years in the Arab world, but I was coming back from buying the newspapers this morning, and I saw a delivery man in front of the Russian ambassador's residence um, who looked to me like a fundamentalist Muslim, the, the scraggly little beard and, and just, just something about the look of him. And, and I did a double take, and I thought, oof, you know, right in front of the Russian ambassador's residence, that's dangerous, you know. So I, I think there's more awareness of the presence of, uh, of radical Islam. Uh, an interesting aspect, too, is I've noticed a big difference between Manuel Valls and François Hollande. Uh, Hollande uh, gave a 45-minute address in front of the, the joint houses of parliament yesterday in Versailles, and he didn't talk about Islam at all. I don't think he ever once used the word Whereas Valls always, um, especially after the Charlie Hebdo attacks, uh, talked a lot about Islam and Islamism, and he talked about Islamo-fascism. Uh, Valls is much more aggressive about radical Islam. Hollande, I think, is someone who always wants to preserve unity, seek consensus, and he realizes that uh, something like 8% of the population of France is Muslim, and he doesn't want to get the community up in arms. Um, the other the other phenomenon which we saw a lot in January was people demanding that Muslims condemn the attacks, that they take a stand, as it were. And I think that hurt and offended a lot of Muslims because they, the ones who are integrated, who are secular, feel like I'm a French citizen like everyone else. Why should I have to, to apologize? You know, did, did we ask people in the Republic of Ireland to apologize for what the IRA did? I mean, that, that was one comparison I heard. So, so there's that, too. But there, there are fewer calls this time. I think people have just realized that the, the uh, radical jihadist Islam has gone so far that there's not really much they can do. Um, I did see, by the way, an opinion piece by the uh, deputy editor of Le Figaro, which is a very mainstream newspaper, of course, saying, um, and I, I quote it to you, says, it's high time that we realize at last that a new war of religion has broken out, and this time on a, on a world uh, scale, on a global scale. And he goes on to say it's, it's a war of religion between Muslims and Christians. Um, so that would be the, the sort of more extreme uh, version that you would get. But in a sense, uh, that's precisely the point that IS is trying to make, isn't it? Their primary purpose is to demonstrate to Muslims that they can't live in a secular society without conflict, and th mm. th their purpose is to sow division and polarization. So they seem to be, in, in a sense, succeeding. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Now, I saw uh, Nicola Enner, a former IS hostage, warning against falling into the trap set by IS. Uh, who ostensibly say that the attack was about stopping the war in Syria and stopping the French bombing, but actually reveling in it, and and that they will provoke through this intervention, through through this um, intervention, an intensification of French engagement in Syria. But does anybody support Enna's view that this is a, a dangerous trap? Uh, I think the extreme left is well. The, actually, the far left in France has been complaining more about the security measures that François, François Hollande is taking. 
I haven't come across any really vocal opposition to the bombing of Iraq, although I did talk to Nikolai Nang yesterday, and, and he said, you know, this is playing into the hands of Islamic State because you're strengthening their argument uh, that the whole world is against them and, and that they're being massacred by everyone. Um, and he also made the point, which I thought was a very good point, that um, Raqqa still has half a million people living in it. And even if the French and Russian and American airstrikes are not hitting civilians, which is kind of unlikely that they wouldn't hit a few, um, that it is traumatizing them. These, these poor people have been uh, bombarded by Bashar al-Assad's forces, and then they got bombed by the Americans, and then, then they got bombed by the Russians, and now they're getting bombed by the French. And, you know, is this, he, Nicolas' argument is that this is just pushing these people into the arms of Islamic State, um, and there may be an element of truth to that. Um, in, and more broadly, on, on the political uh, front, Hollande has emphasised uh, the need to intensify the war and new, uh, new measures to be taken against Islamic State or fundamentalist supporters. Uh, Sarkozy wants to go much further and, and wants every Muslim virtually uh, tagged. Uh, Front National... Oh, every radical Muslim, everyone, indeed, every indeed. Muslim who's on uh, the S list, which stands for uh, Sûreté d'État, which means... Um, uh, yes, he wants them to have uh, these electronic bracelets. He also wants them under house arrest. And Hollande actually said he will consider the, the house arrest provision. He's having it discussed um, among lawmakers and in, in government circles. So we, we, it, I find it quite frightening, actually. One of the provisions uh, Hollande wants is, is for this um, warrantless searches, which they can do under the state of emergency, which is due to last another three months. Uh, he wants police to have that prerogative at all times, which means no, no policeman needs any mandate from anyone, from a judge or the prime minister or anyone, to come and search your home and your car. And obviously, they're not going to search the homes and cars of, of nice middle-class white people. They're going to look, look for guys who have names like Mohammed and Mustafa and, and so on. And I find that a bit frightening. I think it, it is a threat to civil liberties, but I think also that Hollande is under such pressure from the public to do something, to be seen, to be acting, and he, he has really fulfilled all of the wishes of, of the right and the extreme right. I mean, the, the National Front has actually congratulated Hollande on the measures that he announced yesterday, like, like revoking the nationality of, of dual nationals who get involved in, in jihadism. Uh, and this has been a demand of the National Front for, for many, many months. And, and no pullback from, from the left, no, no in, even uh, in his yes, own party? Um, people like Jean-Luc Mélenchon. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they, they represent, what, 2% yeah. of the electorate or something. Nobody's really listening. I, I, I think there's a real hunger for authority, uh, crackdown, um, severity. These are the kind of words I, I hear all the time. I mean, even I had a, a driver named Mohammed on, on um, Sunday night. I went back to the Bataclan. And um, he not only was he saying that everyone on the S list should be put under house, well, he said they should be put in prison. And I said, but, you know, they haven't actually done anything wrong. They're just suspected of having sympathies. And he says, no, 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 throw them all in prison. And he also thought that France was really wrong to have criticized Arab regimes for torturing people. Um, and he was advocating torture. So some of the Muslims are, are as um, right wing as uh, Marine Le Pen or more. Thanks, Lara. Uh, Vincent, the, the Paris attacks represent a, a, a significant change in the direction and the strategy on the part of the Islamic State. Does, does the organisation have a, a, consciously, a conscious new strategy? 
Uh, it's hard to tell, of course. Um, I think the sense um, that uh, a significant underlying strategic shift is is taking place is borne out by a couple of uh, possibilities, let's say, over the last uh, few weeks. And the the, the first is that um, the attacks in Paris follow on a series of attacks um, in Turkey, in Lebanon, in Yemen, for that matter. Um, and, of course, the downing of the Russian airliner in Sinai. So, um, at least superficially, the sense that there's now a more international or global focus on the part of Islamic State seems to be borne out by all of this. Um, but secondly, the increasing suspicion, again, that those involved in the attacks in Paris, um, some at least may have been directed, as it were, from Raqqa, that this is more than simply a local affiliate, a local uh, group, as in Sinai, for instance, taking on the role of Islamic State, but ultimately pre-existing groups who subscribe to the ideology of Islamic State, which is what we've seen uh, to a significant extent in previous attacks. So less the lone wolf and more the possibility that the attacks in Paris are directed, as it were, from from ISHQ, for want of a better phrase. That all feeds into this this notion that we're looking at a shift in strategy. And what is its purpose? I mean, we talk a lot about senseless killing, but in truth, however abominable, it's far from senseless. Yeah, uh, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And what's uh, difficult um, many people to stomach is the notion that a group that is barbaric, and it is, of course, and brutal, um, can also be somewhat rational. Um, but there is, of course, um, e- even in terms of core uh, texts that uh, animate and motivate uh, IS activities, you know, there's reference to brutality, to savagery. There is reference to the role of violence um, as part of the the mission, if you like, of IS. And they, I mean, the purposes are probably manifold. Um, there is the identification of France particularly as an enemy, um, but there is also the the, the the propagandistic value, the recruitment value. Uh, IS is standing up once more, and not only standing up, but successful in striking at the heart of the West, at the heart of uh, the, the bastion of secular liberal democracy in, in France. Um, and IS is, of course, inviting... Uh, further airstrikes. And as, as Lara says, there are those, at least Nicola Enna being one, who worry about the the value that that actually may uh, represent to the strategy of IS. And that is something that has not been thought through in the, the rush, the understandable rush, I'm sure, but the rush to retaliate. But there's also a sense, perhaps, that IS's reach has been bounded, that there are no more areas in which it can extend uh, by claiming to be a defender of the Sunni Arab population. Uh, that, Absolutely. That, that we've reached a point inside uh, Syria and Iraq where uh, IS is more on the defensive these days. Yes, I think that that is uh, certainly true. And whether or not, given the presumably the, the long even time to, to the carrying out of a, uh, a set of atrocities such as we saw in, in Paris at the weekend, whether the two are directly linked um, is something that we can speculate about. But without a shadow of a doubt, IS has 
in terms of its expansionist phase stalled. Um, and if anything, is somewhat in retreat with the you know recent setbacks in Sinjar, with the continuing uh, advances by the Syrian government forces in Aleppo um, and elsewhere, the, the uh, assaults, to, to a limited extent at least, um, in, in Iraq on IS territory. Um, and given that the raison d'etre of IS is, is expansionism, this is not a nation-state project. This is about establishing a global caliphate, albeit that it is highly territorial as well. But given that the appeal of IS to begin with was its seemingly uh, unstoppable nature in the, the early months of its uh, reincarnation as the Islamic State in, uh, in Iraq and the Levant and its various other uh, personifications, all of that now seems to be somewhat at standstill, and that is not good for the, the core propagandistic uh, ways in which it constructs itself and represents itself to Muslims generally who might be sympathetic to to its cause, to its ideology. Uh, on the other side of the equation, Olivier Roy, a French academic, suggests that France uh, stands oddly alone, he says, until now no other state has treated IS as the single greatest strategic threat to the world. And, and it, he, ma he makes an interesting point that despite the fact there are 62 countries in the alliance, there are considerable ambivalences in, involved in this alliance. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, uh, I think Roy's point is, is precisely that France stands alone because of the ambivalence. It's, indeed, it's not ambivalence. In, in many instances, it is straightforward uh, difference of opinion, conflict, if you like, not necessarily violent conflict, though through proxies it is in effect violent in some cases, um, but certainly profound differences um, in terms of who the enemy is in the Syrian uh, and Iraqi contexts, and profound differences over how best then to to prioritize where one places one's, one's forces, where one commits one's uh, energies and resources and deeply profound differences over what uh, a post-IS Middle East might look like, for instance. So you've got the, the Saudis on the one hand, the Emiratis, um, either at governmental level or just below, um, for whom IS is almost a familiar entity in many respects. This is not a dramatically different ideology from the state ideology of Saudi Arabia. Um, and then on the other hand, you have the Iranians, who are the... Uh, effectively the nemesis of the Saudis in the regional context, and who as Shias have a very, very different take on the conflict in Syria and indeed other conflicts in the region. And how you bridge the gaps between regional actors um, is extremely difficult to, to conceive, and, uh, and given the, the present dispensation of forces. And it doesn't look as if these events in Paris are going to tip the balance in that way. I mean, uh, and, and Paul, perhaps you, you, you have strong feelings about how this could be an opportunity for peace, peace talks, but do you see a new in, a dynamic being injected into them? Well, uh, as to the powers involved, including the regional ones, I mean, they did uh, make some progress in Vienna, and that was followed up at the G20 uh, in the last few days. I mean, they're now talking with the Russians uh, about a possible ceasefire, a disaggregation of forces, a constitution, a time scale. Some of this is, 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 on, is a wish list, but some of it 
it's much more concrete than it was before. And uh, although they haven't got to this point, uh, those who are really thinking their way through the, the shape of a potential peace deal are thinking about some kind of federal or confederal uh, system emerging, which would include an Alawite coastal strip, uh, a Kurdish entity, and some kind of Sunni entity. Now, the big blockage, of course, is what on earth you do with IS in that, in that setting. And it may be that the military balance uh, and the regional balance politically is, is, is just unripe for that. But on the other hand, uh, here is the flow of people, the migrants, still coming in, in great numbers to Europe. And this is in large part an exodus. It's an exodus from the Syrian civil war. So I, I, I think uh, if you're going, to, you, you face in a certain way in, in Europe a choice between securitizing the response to this, including um, a much more martial uh, and warlike response, which the you know, initial dis, French discourse uh, included, or uh, an attempt to try and deal with politically and diplomatically with the origins of that exodus, including with regional actors. Now, uh, I, this is uh, an astonishingly difficult um, task to confront, but it seems to me it, it, it's necessary to confront it. And, and indeed, you, 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 you see that the focus on, on finding terrorists among the refugees uh, in, um, in Europe in the wake of the Paris attacks is changing the politics of the uh, migration debate. Uh, IS is successfully playing on the fears uh, of Europeans. Um, and, but if new borders go up, it will be a humanitarian as well as a political disaster. Well, it, yeah, I agree. It was striking how that question of the passport... Uh, and the fingerprinting that seemed to link one of the bombers uh, with, with an individual who'd passed through from Turkey into Greece um, uh, became headlines overnight, if you like, in, in, in some of the Sunday papers. And it's been taken up uh, as a big uh, way of securitizing this issue amongst those who are uh, very much opposed around Europe uh, to the German and Commission plans uh, for dealing equitably and fairly. Uh, through some kind of quota system with the number of people who've come. So in, immediately the issue is being linked. And this is where my, my worry about the uh, you know, uh, false and certainly premature but also false securitization of the migrant issue arising from this crisis uh, faces us very plainly politically. But I mean the effects of Paris, for example, on what you might call New Europe have been precisely in the in the direction of securitization. Of course, of course. Uh, I'm not under I'm not underestimating it. Um, but you have to then to ask how you what's the counter narrative to that? And what are the counteractions? Uh, because if it goes uh, further in the direction of securitization, it plays very much into those who want to close off, close borders, um, uh, uh, emphasize the security aspect as against the uh, humanitarian uh, and, and political aspect. And Vincent, do you see any new dynamic entering that pe Syrian peace process, uh, uh, those discussions? Um, I'm not sure that, uh, that, that the attacks in Paris uh, will inject anything new into the, the, the negotiations generally. Um, I expect there, you know, there will be some uh, at least rhetorical reference to the the urgency of dealing with this. Um, I think the sorts of positions that that Paul has uh, has been touching on um, have been in formation for some time anyway. And 
there is realization, of course, that the the status quo is untenable. The status quo is untenable for Europe, and I think uh, for Russia, the realization that this that their involvement in Syria can now uh, reach their borders, as it were, um, is clearer after the downing of the airliner in Sinai. Um, but I don't think we're going to see any rapid fix for for what's going on because the, the structural impediments in the region are are really quite quite significant. Thank you, Vincent, Paul, and Lara in Paris. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Start your free trial site today with no credit card required at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code Irish Times to get ten percent off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now to Suzanne Lynch in Brussels. Suzanne, I've seen a a quotation from a security expert that says that every time there's an attack, we discover that the perpetrators were known to the authorities. What this shows is that our intelligence is actually pretty good, but our ability to act on it is limited by the sheer numbers. It seems that Belgium and Molenbeek in particular are awash with with, uh, terrorists. How, how How do things appear from Brussels? Yes, Paddy. Well, there's been um, a series of arrests in that area of Brussels over the weekend, another raid on Monday afternoon, which uh, yielded little in terms of actual arrests. Um, But what we've seen is uh, seven people were arrested over the weekend, um, five of those released and two of those are still being held. But you're right in that it now looks like that at least one of the suicide bombers um, who was involved in the Paris attacks, who lived in Belgium in Molenbeek, was known to the police, but it was for petty crime. Um, he has now been linked to a cafe in the Molenbeek area where there was suspicions that marijuana was, was being smoked. He was on the uh, police authorities' radar for that. For that. Um, but there's now serious questions being asked about the whole pe- Belgian police system. Um, one of the main perpetrators or suspected uh, perpetrators behind the Paris uh, events, and indeed a lot of the um, various terrorist or, uh, attacks um, in the last few months, has has boasted um, boasted that he was able to to travel in and out of Europe, in and out of Turkey, and back to Belgium without the Belgian authorities noticing. Um, that was was running in one of the uh, ISIS magazines that was published um, in recent months. Uh, so there's a really a sense now that Belgium is seen as a soft touch, if you like, uh, for in terms of uh, terror cells, um, in terms of surveillance. Turning to Brussels as the EU headquarters. We saw today uh, the invoking by defence ministers of a mutual defence clause, 42.7 of the EU treaty. What is the significance of that, and is it the first time? Yes, um, well, this was first mentioned yesterday, or on Monday, by uh, François Hollande during his address in Versailles, uh, and he mentioned he may, have brought, he may uh, ask for this article to be invoked. Now, as it, as by coincidence, if you like, on Tuesday in Brussels, EU defence ministers were meeting, and France indeed did uh, bring this to the table. Now, this was passed by all the EU defence ministers present, including uh, the Irish defence minister, Simon Coveney. It didn't go to a vote. It got, it got um, unilateral approval. Now, the uh, Irish officials have been a pain to point out... I think that you mean really unanimous approval? 
Yes, that's what we're hearing. It yeah. didn't go to a vote, but basically everyone around the table um, supported it, hence it didn't need, did not need to go to a vote. So Irish officials have been saying here that really this will not have an effect on Irish neutrality. The clause itself says that if a member state is the victim of armed aggression on its territory, then other member states have an obligation of aid and assistance to it. But there's also a, the following sentence says that this shall not prejudice the specific character of the security policy of individual member states. Now this whole issue came up uh, during the Lisbon Treaty um, when Ireland, of course, has to vote on the on the Lisbon Treaty, and Irish officials are saying that this clause, if you like, gives protection to uh, countries in the European Union who may not be members of NATO. Ireland is one of six members of the European Union who is not not a member of NATO. It's uh, the Irish officials are saying that Irish neutrality will be protected uh, uh, under this clause. Now, in saying that, it's 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 unclear um, what this is going to mean in practice. A lot of officials are saying at the moment it may be more symbolic, but what we might be seeing is that a number of member states giving France maybe aid, maybe military assistance, bilaterally, if you like, but under um, this EU clause. And specifically in the Irish case, that presumably means that the triple lock will still apply, that if if it provides military aid, it will put a matter to the the government, to the Doyle, and uh, presumably seek some form of UN sanction for any assistance. Yes, absolutely. So if it it develops that um, this article, this this, this decision taken on Tuesday, will be used to maybe sanction another... um, CSDP mission or some other EU mission um, to help France, well then yes, the triple lock will apply in that situation. Ireland's already involved in a number of um, EU foreign policy missions, probably around 10 or 11 different civilian missions around around the world really, a lot of them in Africa, East, the Balkans, etc. Um, so if, if it turns out that this is the way this, this uh, article will be used, well then yes, the triple lock uh, will come into effect. Thank you, Suzanne. Thanks to Lara Marlowe in Paris, Vincent Durack, Paul Gillespie and Suzanne Lynch, and our producer Sinead O'Shea and Gary White on sound.